0: Freedom comes at a high price, but not to us. It's free. Our skin in the game is that it was our sin that necessitates the cross in the first place. That cross that purchased our freedom. So we must never lose sight of this freedom. Because if we do, we might take it for granted and abuse it, or even worse, perhaps lose it. So, many of you, many of us all have come today with some type of burden, something we're carrying. Maybe it's sin, maybe it's worry, maybe your mind is simply filled with all the things that you have to achieve this week. And I just ask you that you would metaphorically lay that aside. It will keep as we consider what it is to be free in Christ. And that specifically is that we are free from achieving the law, that as humans, our effort in that is something that we are free from, and we are free from the judgment and the wrath of sin, as that has been dealt with. And I don't just mean that you know, we're no longer following the rules and rituals of the Old Testament. I mean that we have no obligation to achieve righteousness because it has been given to us in the cross. Physically, legally, and spiritually, the blood of Christ canceled out our record of debt against God and the wrath that was due to us was paid in the damnation of Christ himself. And this is not just an academic pursuit. This is not just a proclamation of some theological doctrine in and of itself. Because like I said, it is our cro- our sins that were on the cross. We need to take this personally because our freedom came at a very high price. But to us, it is free. And regardless of your maturity in Christ today, a decision stands before us all in this text to live in light of this freedom more fully. So Galatians, just to kind of zoom out, was written about 48 AD, which is 15 years after Jesus was on the cross. And just after Paul had gone on his first missionary journey, he writes this. So he had gone, he'd established the gospel, seen them walking in the truth of the gospel. And shortly thereafter, he hears that there are these Agitators, chapter 5, verse 12 tells us. And many just suppose these are Judaizers, which are simply Christians that say you need to follow the Old Testament law in order to truly be saved. And so the whole book of Galatians is simply a defense for the purity and the truth of the gospel. And Paul comes uncorked. He, he, this is a polemic If you read Galatians, uh, the words are so strong. I'll read you a few verses. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you." Paul, the spiritual leader that he is and the shepherd that he is of God's people understands his responsibility to focus primarily on, again, the purity and the truth of the gospel. Regardless of how it feels for him, regardless of how it feels for the Galatians, there is one thing that he focuses on and that is Christ and what it means to live freely in Christ. And Galatians, just to give you kind of a roadmap, is broken up into three main sections. Chapter one and two, are simply about his, the defense of his ministry, that his apostleship did not come from man. He was actually independent of the apostles, um, that his authority came directly from Christ. And so he's saying, basically, listen up, this is from God. Chapters three and four is, again, a defense of the doctrine of justification by faith. That is the purity of the gospel, that now we live in light of the faith, that we have our righteousness through belief and trust in the cross of Christ. And Sean has been going through this in Romans the last few weeks. And so we come to chapter 5 today, and as God would have it, to to consider what it means to truly be free in Christ, which is Paul's focus in chapters 5 and 6. So let's read together the passage Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. He doesn't mince any words, does he? Verse 1 is a hinge on this context that Paul is explaining, even from the Old Testament we are children of promise, along with Isaac, the son of Abraham. Because before the law, 430 years before, the promise to Abraham was made. And we too are children of this promise, that we have this freedom in Christ. So verse 1 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And it's almost redundant sounding, but it's, it's, there's irony in this. The implication, really, is that we need to be told. Further, it says, therefore, keep standing firm. This is military language. This is a fight. This is a battle. And the the crux of the issue, really, is that we want to work. Grace is actually something that is unnatural to us. And so there's this strong command to stand firm in the freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. So why is this battle for freedom so challenging? Why is this battle for freedom so hard? First, we were created to work. You think of Genesis 1 and 2. Adam was commissioned to take charge and work the garden. And I know that on Monday morning when I wake up early, I am not feeling like this is, yeah, this is a beautiful God-created thing. I'm thinking this is a result of the fall that I have to wake up this early and go to work. But after a productive day at work or perhaps a productive day at home or at the gym after a hard workout, there is something that is rewarding about putting forth effort. The best things in life come through hard work and effort at times. So I have three pictures, just to kind of show you an interesting thing. So on the left here, this picture is pretty simple. Um, as you move to the middle one, there's more pieces of composition, there's leading lines, the sky starts to open up, there's a building back on the left. And the one furthest on the right takes the most effort to understand, but actually it is the best of the three pictures even though all three are of the same place. The point is really, is really small that, you know, we have to take time to consider, it takes effort to understand, you know, there's something in the foreground, this picture, why is it aesthetically pleasing to us? But I'm just making the point that even if we don't always acknowledge it, it's in our DNA that work brings pleasure. We are created to work. Secondly, there's an external pressure. Think about the temperature of Christianity in America today. There is exceeding pressure against evangelicalism and Christianity in general uh, to be a Christian. And that was true in the time of Paul, that fear and intelligent reasoning at times opposed Christians. Galatians 2, verse 11 to 13 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles." but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Think about that. Peter himself spent three years being directly discipled by Jesus Christ. Barnabas, having done ministry side by side with Paul, The two of them succumbed and fell prey to the pressure and the fear that came from the opposition externally to them. We should not think too highly of ourselves that we are beyond external pressure. And lastly, there's an internal battle. Um, We have a hard time feeling dependent on other people. When we sin, we want to hide it. There's this shame that comes with that. We don't want to be forgiven. It's often that when we sin, we hide it because we want to go and deal it. We want to deal with it, fix it, before we actually come to God. I want to introduce to you today this idea of practical theology. We have a proclaimed theology where we say, yes... By grace through faith, I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And our practical theology says, I'm going to wait a little bit of time and I'm going to work on this before I bring it to God. (laughs) So we on one hand say and preach these mantras and on the other hand um, betray our faith. So we don't want to feel dependent on other people. We feel the shame, but we also want the credit for our success. So many of us feel that hard work is our primary means of worshiping God. And amen, hallelujah, there are verses all over the Bible that say, you know, do your work heartily unto the Lord and to forsake laziness and things like this. But there's this subtle thing in our practical theology where as we pursue ministry, as we dedicate ourselves to Christ, as we pursue Christ, as we study, as we endeavor to do everything that we can for Christ, slowly this idea creeps in that we want some of the credit. Consider this the parable of Jesus in the field where the workers work this. One guy works the whole day, the other guy works a little bit of the day, and the guy who comes in at the end gets the same pay as the guy in the beginning. So if you go to work for eight hours and get paid for your eight hours, and then a guy comes in and works one hour and gets paid the same amount as you, you'd be a little ticked off, wouldn't you? That's unjust, that's not fair. So how do you feel, now that I'm telling you, that your ministry, your efforts, your dedication to Christ, the sacrifices you make for God, actually bear no relevance to your salvation? The only reason that we have salvation, that you have salvation, is that Jesus Christ loves you and he chose you. And consider the massive freedom that comes with that. That it never has and never will depend on you. And you are free to live in the light of that. And so all the more you should continue in your ministry. You should continue to make sacrifices. Work hard for the Lord because of the freedom. Because of grace. That's the fuel that motivates you. It's not to earn the freedom. And we have to be really careful and diligent to preserve that in our hearts. So I have three things for you today. Christ's death and resurrection lead us, dare I say, obligate us to accept these three things. That freedom in Christ is understanding that relying on your doing divorces you from Christ. Secondly, freedom in Christ is acknowledging you need grace. And trusting that God, not you, will one day make you righteous. And lastly, freedom in Christ is believing and living as though the only thing, the only thing that bears eternal significance is faith working through love. The first of these, freedom in Christ, is understanding that relying on your doing divorces you from Christ. Let's read verses 2 to 4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the entire, the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So you may, under no circumstances, whether by the law of God, by the law of others, or the law of your own standards, contribute any validity to your case for salvation. Not only are you free from feeling the need to contribute to your salvation, but to do so negates the truth of the gospel. So what is Paul really battling here? Again, the Judaizers. They've come into the cities, the region of Galatia, these churches, and they're presenting this Old Testament law. They're saying that you need to be circumcised. And that is symbolic, more than just the physical act, but it's an initiatory rite and pledge to follow the totality of the Old Testament law. It is to seek and secure one's status with God in terms of that law. Think about this, though. Paul... Nowhere in his discussion of the Old Testament mentions animal sacrifices. Kind of interesting. It presumes that there is a common understanding between him and the Galatians that Christ's sacrifice actually removes the need for those sacrifices. That being the case, he draws a very black and white picture that either you are in the camp of in Christ, saved by faith only, or you are completely separate from that and going to follow the entirety of the law, every last bit of it, because you, there's no sacrifices there for you anymore. So it's one or the other. So think of Galatians 3.10. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So again, he's drawing this clear line in the sand that's saying, if you're not fully in Christ, you are entirely cut off from him. If you choose circumcision, that is it. You are divorced from Christ. And so underlying Paul's um, argument here is this underlying thing, not just of the Old Testament, but really about human achievement in general. So Galatians 1:6, in a general way, he says, "I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel." That's pretty general. And in 3:3, 3, 3, a very good definition of legalism actually. "Have you begun by the spirit are you or having begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh?" Again, That's back to the human achievement. And lastly, this greater to the lesser argument I want to make here. Chapter three, verse 21. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. So what is the point there? That if God himself gave a law and by it you and I are completely incapable of achieving life in it, What makes you and I think that by our own standard, we can achieve righteousness? Again, Paul is battling the danger and the frailty of our human effort. And he is saying, if it is anything other than faith in Christ, you are cut off. You are divorced from Christ. So sometimes, again, we get so caught up in seeking God, ministry, and doing, and doing, doing, that we start to believe in our hearts that either our failures or our successes change the way that God views us, change the ways that God feels about us. This practical theology is actually a rejection of the cross. If we think that our failures or successes influence God in any way toward us, we are saying the cross was insufficient for our forgiveness and that I need to work to gain that. Let me say this in a, in a positive light. If you trust in the blood of Christ, you will be in the good standing of God regardless of how hard you fail or how well you succeed in life because the two are completely irrelevant to your salvation. The only thing that is relevant to your salvation is faith in the blood of Christ, you are free. So think about the transaction of the cross, particularly that God, being perfectly just, could not also love us who are sinners. If He's holy and He's just, that demands that our sin needs punishment. So how can God demonstrate His love to us? And many of you are baptized. So I want to I want to connect the your baptism, your proclamation of faith to the cross. Because baptism is simply a reflection, a demonstration of what God has spiritually done in your heart, that he has raised you from the dead. You, along with Christ, are, are dead to your sin and the law and have been raised with Christ to this life. And so, think about Ephesians. Ephesians says that Christ was the offering and then he was a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was switched. You came with an animal sacrifice and you made that sacrifice for your sin so that you could have the peace offering with God. But Jesus being the standard was the offering first. He was able to achieve in human form the righteousness that God required in the law. So when he went to the cross, he took your sin, my sin on himself and he died being the perfect satisfaction to the, to the justice that God required. And that, so follow me here, God at that point was completely free and unconstrained to judge you and I based on law and sin, because those are dead with Christ. And we now live in the freedom of the life and the righteousness that Christ gives us. God is free and unconstrained to lavish you on love regardless of how you behave. If you trust and you believe in Jesus Christ for that righteousness, you are free. Secondly, freedom in Christ is acknowledging that you need grace and trusting that God, not you, will one day make you righteous. This is verse five. It says, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Paul changes his tone here. He kind of goes from accusatory to invitation. And he even does that, look, verse four, second person, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen by grace. But he changes it to the first person in verse five. For we, through the spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. He's giving them an invitation to own and take part in the truth of the gospel and the freedom he is presenting to them. And he says it's through the Spirit. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and promise. God in the Old Testament promised to replace the law and give us the ability to obey through the power of the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, he's speaking of a new covenant. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. Ezekiel 36 says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The new covenant is a promise that God no longer depends on your human achievement, but he's enabling you through the power of the spirit to obey. And Jesus himself speaks of the fulfillment of this, John 14 I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it did not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So look, it's no longer up to you. God has dealt with the law, he's dealt with sin and he gives you the Holy Spirit So that you have the power, the energy, the ability to make the changes that you need to. You are free and liberated by the power of the Spirit. That enables our faith. So he talks about here that we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. and So he's talking about a future righteousness. We have been declared righteous in Christ today. Amen, hallelujah. Let's take that to the bank. But he's saying there is a future righteousness that we have to look forward to you. And with that comes an implication that he knows that you are a sinner today. And we act all surprised that (laughs) we sin. God already knows, it's right here in the scripture. There's an implication that you need grace and by definition, that's what grace is. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. There's none of this like, well, I've heard this sermon before, I've read this passage before, and so I shouldn't need grace. That's made up. Grace is for that. Grace is for everything. And the connection between the faith here and the righteousness is that faith is the means we enter into the relationship with God. Faith is the means by which we maintain our relationship with God until the end, and faith is what will confirm us on the day of judgment at the time that he actually makes us righteous. And we've got to trust, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've got to trust that God's gonna do that. And it is actually a lot of trust to put into God's hands that he's gonna come through on his promise. But he's paid a big price that we would. So just allow this freedom to wash over you for one minute. That God already created a plan and has acted on it to make you righteous. And it is no longer your responsibility. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We need grace. We rely on God to make us righteous. And if we act in any way, whether in our proclaimed theology or our practical theology, that is contradictory and hypocritical to the cross of Christ. You are free. And this is how we live. We walk by the Spirit instead of the law, by faith instead of by works. We are waiting instead of seeking. We are hoping instead of despairing. Righteousness hoped for and received instead of righteousness sought and earned. You are completely and entirely, 100% in Christ, free. So now that law and sin are removed, God has given you the spirit to enable you to have hope that God will come through on his promise to make you righteous. What do we do? Brings me to my final point. Freedom in Christ is believing and living as though the only thing, the only thing that bears eternal significance is faith working through love. This is verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So the the phrase, I want you guys to catch this, bring your attention to this, in Christ, again, all or nothing, you are as much in Christ as you are in this room right now. It is as black and white as the image of a, of a diving board. You walk up to the end of the diving board, you're either jumping all the way into the water or you're turning around and you're getting off the diving board. There's no in between, one or the other. You are all the way in Christ. And that is how God sees you. You've heard, you know, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. It's because you are in Christ completely. That's what this means. And so when he says here, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He's talking about identity. You know, Jews, the Greeks, this is what they used as a form of identity. So Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have a completely New identity. Yet, what does this mean? So yes, of course there are Jews and Greeks. There are racial differences. There are social economic differences um, in the world. You know, he says slave and free, of course. Of course there are gender differences. There are male and female. But what he's saying is there's no eternal significance to that. It actually is irrelevant because you are a new creation in Christ, chapter six, verse 15 says, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is something that is not only just brand new out of the factory, it is entirely new creation, that before Christ, this didn't even exist. We have an entirely new identity. And you all know the saying, blood is thicker than water. Well, Paul would say, Spirit is thicker than blood. And we, Crossway, are the thickest family. Before our own family, before our blood family, we as the church, the bride of Christ, have a new identity. We are a new creation, and we live in that. So he comes to his point about faith working through love. And this is actually a great text that bridges both Paul and James. And Sean did a great job explaining that last week. You'll remember the analogy of the tree and the telephone pole. And I don't wanna repeat a lot of that. I just wanna reiterate that faith working through love does not mean that faith only has power when it results in love. Faith stands by itself. However, faith working in love does mean that genuine faith that counts for justification will and does express itself in love. Faith is what saves you, not your actions, not your love. But a genuine faith expresses love. And let me say it this way, too. Genuine faith begets genuine love. Some of the hardest tasks for us, the commandments in the Bible, some of the hardest things to do is to love one another. Because sometimes people stink. (laughs) Myself included, right? But people will smell your fake stuff from a mile away. If you're not receiving the forgiveness, the freedom, the love that Christ gives you, your love to other people is just going to be stinky and fake. So get rid of that and, and saturate yourself in Christ's love. Because Christ's love, like our liberty, is given freely. And that's what our call is as well. Something that really liberated me in understanding what it is to love as a Christian, particularly those outside the church, 1 Corinthians 5, let me read it to you, verses 9 to 12. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, a Christian. If he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do, not judge those, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Let me summarize that for you. You are not only free from judging people outside of our body of faith, unbelievers, non-Christians, if you, but if you judge them, you are actually in sin. Because here it says those are for God to judge. Your only obligation to people outside of the faith is to love them. And there's massive liberty in that. You don't need to hold them to this standard. That's for you and I to hold each other to this standard. And all you need to do is just express your love. So this faith working through love is something that we can all live by. That whatever your identity, whatever your worldview, whatever it is you decide to pursue in your life, your career, your family, your ministry, whatever. If it is void of faith working through love, it will bear zero eternal ramifications, zero eternal significance, and what we need to live by is simply to love. We are called to love. Our faith expresses itself through love. So in summary, freedom in Christ is understanding that relying on your doing divorces you from Christ. It is acknowledging that you need grace and trusting that God, not you, will one day make you righteous And lastly, believing and living as though the only thing, the only thing that bears eternal significance is faith working through love. So Paul went to bat for the Galatians, right? Against this false gospel. His sole focus was on the truth, the purity and the truth of the gospel. And that's my heart for you today. And not just that you would preserve these truths in your heart, that you would have the Christian mantra. You know, a lot of these things I believe many of you, if not all of you, already know. But I care to see that when the rubber meets the road, you're enduring these things. What is the burden that you set down this morning? Because when you go back into the life this week, chances are we're gonna pick those burdens back up. It's our natural way of living. If we're not careful to enter into the freedom that Christ has given us, we're just gonna go right back to our old habits. That could be when you feel like an insufficient parent. You're impatient with your kids, or vice versa. You guys are super impatient with your parents. What's your response? You're going to look at your brother and sister in Christ and say, You're not treating me like a Christian should. Well, unfortunately, Christ gave them grace and liberty, so why can't you? But what's your response? Perhaps you're going to go back to that nasty pet sin of yours that you love so much, whatever that is. Or maybe you're just ignoring that sin, the one you've been ignoring for years and that you won't bring to Christ because you're not trusting Him. What is your response? Maybe you're gonna go to work, you're into your ministry, and you're gonna create that beautiful spreadsheet of, you know, the resume of your spiritual achievements. Here's all the things that I've accomplished in my life. All great things, but what is your response? To try harder? To discipline yourself? Do better next time? I want you to create a mental note for yourself that when you catch yourself falling into those things that you so easily fall into that you just stop for five minutes and then you sit down. Whatever you're doing, if you're at work, it doesn't matter. Go find a quiet place. Sit, be still, and know that he is God. Recall the freedom in Christ and let that fuel you let that be the power and initiative that you need to change. Because that is living by the Spirit. I have this image in my mind, and it's not from the Bible per se. But I just, this, this vision, this video, if you will, coming to the judgment throne, uh, judgment seat of God. I'm coming up to it, and God says, Mark, I've been expecting you. And as I'm you know, surveying, he pulls out the record of my life, all, this, all the rights, all the wrongs, and he's looking at it, and he says, Mark, I can't even read this to you. This is a mess. And as he turns it to me, all my accolades, all my achievements, and all my accusations and failures are blotted out in blood. And he says, I can't read it because all I see is the blood of my son. And Mark, you are my son. Enter into my rest. This is what it means to accept grace, to live in the freedom that all of those things, all our failures, all our excesses never have and never will change the love that God has for us. And you know the way this fleshes is out is that you and I actually functionally believe that time is our savior, that we fail again and again and again and again in our sin, the 5,000th time that you've committed and confessed this sin. We begin to believe that time is what saves us because in the moment, Immediately after we do nothing, we wait, whether it's an hour, whether it's a day, whether it's years, it doesn't matter. We wait because we believe that I'm going to give myself some time to feel good enough to come back to God. That is a misunderstanding of the truth of the gospel. Because in the moment that you sin, in the moment after you sin, God already has and already will be ready to forgive you. He died For that, He loves you unconditionally. And what happens when you learn to bring your sin in the moment to God is that you look at this and you say, God, it does not feel like you forgive me, but your promises and the truth of your scripture says that you do. And if this is true, if you actually do forgive me right now and I know that I'm committing this sin, I know, and you still love me the same, the Spirit of God transforms your heart to trust and know the love of God so that you respond without words in your soul in love and adoration for God. And through that, you begin to be changed, understanding that God, no matter what, by the grace of Christ, is free and unconstrained to love you regardless of what you do in life. God gets the glory you begin to trust this is the gospel. And as we head back into the busyness of our life, we have to be extremely diligent. We have to stand firm in the freedom that God has set before us. Christ died that you would do that. And I'll leave you with one final thought. It is at times and moments in life that I realize I'm most unlike God, not always necessarily when I sin, though that's obviously true, but it's when I feel betrayed. It's when I feel hurt by someone else, and in the period of time after that, I can't even muster up the willingness and the effort to pray God's favor on those people. It's easy to sin. It's hard enough to put off sinning. But loving someone as Christ has called us to love someone is much harder. So we find these personal offenses, right? And we find ourselves failing to love. So consider the ineffably beautiful character of Jesus Christ, I want you to focus all your mind and heart on who Jesus is, who God is, and think about that in the gospel, when he was betrayed by the people that he not only created, he invested three whole years and called the 12 his best friends. These people not only betrayed him and left him, but they did so to his death. And what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we behold the character of Christ, it should evoke worship and response. It's a crossway. If we are slaves of this man, Christ, we are of all mankind most free. Let's pray. God, you have... you have demonstrated a love that is beyond words and I pray that you would by your spirit, Lord, help us to understand we are frail and we so often go back to the burden of our human achievements. We so quickly run to the different things in life that are contrary to the gospel. But Lord, we want to be in you. We want to live by faith And we need you moment by moment in life, God. I pray that we would be changed, not through our discipline, but through your love and the freedom that you give us. That we're no longer obligated to achieve our own righteousness. You have given it to us. You will complete that work. Help us to live in light of this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.